something I gotta tell you. Take off your hat. I am. Listen. Hey, there. I saw some kids on the block. Little kids, maybe, maybe 10, 11 years old. Laura, they were the kids I played with when I was 10. We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. Hey, folks, it's Terry here. And I uh, just got to just let you guys know before we get into this episode of uh, a man, a man child being a child, childlike man. Um, I was worried that when we start recording, because I had the window open here at the new place, because it's it's not gotten quite hot enough. You have to turn on the AC, which we finally have. We have at this place, which will be nice to have once we get it going. But there's people that live on the street that I'm on that um, they drive remote control cars and they're not kids. And so I kept hearing this noise that was happening outside. And I'm like, yep, that is that the thing I want to have going on in the background? Is this two dudes just uh, racing remote control cars in the background while I talk about uh, Mr. Horace Ford here? It just seemed it just seemed kind of appropriate in the most annoying way possible. Oh, yeah, that that would suck. I, I was about to turn into a child. Uh, as we were talking just a moment ago before we uh, turned the mics on, the ice cream truck just went past my house. And <laughs> I seriously was going to drop the phone and run out there and grab some ice cream. But my my will is strong. <laughs> well, I appreciate your sacrifice. So, yeah, uh, this episode we're going to get into is season four, episode 15, The Incredible World of Horace Ford. I think that name lies, but we'll get to there when we get there. Um, air date is April 18th, 1963. Number one film by, by birdie. Number one song. He's so fine by the chiffons, uh, things that happened on this date. I think I cut off this person's first name. I think it was, uh, uh, Rietta Grotenfint, uh, age 42 was a tightrope walker who had been part of the flying with Linda's high wire act. Uh, the sister-in-law of Carl Walinda fell 65 feet to her death while performing at the Shrine Circus in the Civic Auditorium in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, two other members of the circus troupe had been killed after falling from the high wire in Detroit uh, in January of 62. So, yeah. Um, I like that I always just find like this tragedy that's someone was just going to the circus, some kids are going to have a good time, and then that happened. Yeah, I, I think that those are majority of the time um the negative notes of our past are going to stick out like sore thumbs <laughs> yeah it wasn't like what happened in the state well bobby went to the circus and had a good time well okay good i'm glad that we looked <laughs> like there's not a none of that where it's like and nothing absolutely happened at all he saw a lion i don't think that's going to be on wikipedia but yeah um 
It just wouldn't wouldn't be strange highways without like the only thing that would have made this more strange highways that they would have while falling to their death they somehow fell out of a window that had very weak glass before that happened but I shouldn't make light of someone's death but it, it you know I'm a bad person that's what I do sometimes and this you know it happened a while ago so all right uh, that's all I had for 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 day and date um, uh, yeah let's just get into our our cast and crew here. Okay, so we start this one off with our director, uh, Abner Bitterman? Bieberman. Yeah, Bieberman, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, so he did three other episodes. The the Dummy, Number 12, Looks Like, uh, Just Like You, and I Am the Knight. I Am the Knight. So, yeah. Um, oh, uh, it's, it's actually a two-part title. I'm sorry. I Am the Knight, Color Me Black. Yeah, the um the the number twelve looks just like you on that one. I think are in season five, so um, we've not seen them yet. Uh, the dummy, which was one of my favorite episodes from season uh, three, um, is really really good. So when I when I realized it was the same director, I had my hopes up, and that's that's about all I have about that. Yeah, and um, he worked on uh, episode of The Outer Limits, and then uh, twenty five episodes of The Virginian, but I didn't recognize anything else outside of that. Yeah. So, uh, nothing like, I don't think the direction of this episode is, is problematic. I think it's just, it is, it's very workmanlike. So I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, like there, there are some interesting shots. I'll, we'll get there when we talk about it. Uh, but yeah, I didn't have much about him. And then, uh, the writer on this one is, uh, Reginald Rose. Um, he did, this was the only episode of twilight zone that he worked on. Um, but his biggest claim to claim to fame was twi- uh, 12 Angry Men. Yeah, that was written as, a, I think, a teleplay that ended up becoming a movie. So he ended up getting like, like nominated for an Oscar for that. Um, so also, uh, I just want to mention here, uh, he created the legal drama called The Defenders, which would actually come after The Twilight Zone. Um, his his teleplay, The Incredible War to Horse Ford, was the basis for an episode of The Twilight Zone, which I mentioned here. Um, but it was, um, let's see here. It was originally a Studio One teleplay that aired in 1955 that had um, Art Carney in it. So this had appeared before on you know on CBS and a while ago, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the episode. I just want to mention that this is a, this this actual story, the Incredible World of Horrors Ford, has actually been on television previous to this episode. Um, and then also he wrote um, uh, a film in 1982's The Final Option. Uh, the only reason I know this name is because I bought a four pack of movies last year when on the other show that I do invasion of the podcast, we're covering Canon films. And there was this really shitty 3d film called the treasure of the four crowns that I wanted to watch because Canon distributed it like internationally. I, and, um, and I, only way I could find it was in this four pack and the final options, one of those films too. So now I feel like I need to watch it. Yeah. Just, uh, round it out. I, that's one of those fun things about getting those four packs and like triple packs. And I, they always pair something with it. And you're like, okay, well, uh, I guess I have to watch it now. But <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and he also wrote the, the, the screenplay for the film, um, the wild geese in 1978 that had, um, Oh shoot. Um, one of the bonds, uh, Roger, uh, Rod, not, Roger Moore was in that. And then I, the only thing I could equate it to is like, it's like the expendables in the sense that you have, a bunch of older military men that are now private contractors um, being hired to do something. 
and and it actually did quite well to spawn a sequel. So, you know, Reginald Rose actually had um you know has a bit of a pedigree. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so it's uh that's all I had for him. Yeah. Um, onto our cast uh, we have uh, Pat Hingle. Uh, he plays Horace Ford. Uh, this was his only appearance in Twilight Zone. Uh, he was also in Hang 'em High, Sudden Impact, which was the uh, Clint Eastwood movie. Um, and then he also was in Maximum Overdrive. Yes. And he, he would be most recognizable for playing uh, Commissioner Gordon in the um, the Batman movies uh, from 89, the Tim Burton film into uh, Batman and Robin. Yeah. So he did two Burton and two Schumacher or Schumacher films as commissioner Gordon. But yeah, what I realized I was like, yeah, he was a maximum overdrive. That made me excited. Then, uh, uh, he was actually one of his last roles. Uh, he was, uh, Mr. Dennett senior and Talladega nights. So he was the one that was the sponsor of like one of the big racing teams. Um, so that was like, I, I like Talladega nights. Uh, and then also, um, let's see here. Uh, two episodes of the defenders. So I just want to mention that because since uh, Reginald Rose, you know, created that show, um, he showed up at it later. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Also here I have in, in 1959 while playing um, like on Broadway, he was offered the title role of uh, the film Elmer Gantry, but lost it to Burt Lancaster because Hingle had nearly a fatal accident. He was trapped in an elevator on his West End apartment in Manhattan when it stalled between the second and third floors. He crawled out and tried to reach the second floor corridor, but lost his balance and fell 54 feet down the shaft. He fractured his skull, wrist, hip, and most of his ribs on his left side. He broke his left leg in three places and lost a little finger on his left hand. He lay near death for two weeks, and his recovery required more than a year. I'm not laughing about like he laid near death for two weeks, but it's like, dude fell down an elevator. And couldn't have the, you know, the lead role in a film because of this, which I mean, that's a good, if you're going to have a reason to not take a job, it's because you fell down an elevator shaft. Yes. But like what, like, I'm not saying that like people were more sturdy then, but goddamn, you fell down an elevator shaft and it's like, yeah, you know, I lost a little bit of my finger and I was at death's door for two weeks, but you know, I'm going to keep on trucking. <laughs> like it just, whew. Yeah. And here I am. I'm like. I get a hangnail and I'm like, ah, oh, dude, I don't think I can show up today. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, Oh, Oh man. Oh, my wrist hurts. I better lay down and take a nap. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just, he's a tough dude and I like Pat Hingle. He's very much a character actor. Um, I don't know if this episode was the best showcase for him. Uh, but his more quiet moments were good. It's just everything else may not have been, but I don't know if that was, just his misread of everything or the director or something that, but I do like him. Yeah. I, I, of the movies I listed, I, I like him a lot in uh, the roles that he has done. I, he, he's definitely a, a more serious guy in my opinion. Um, I didn't really feel like this was the right casting either. It just didn't seem like, um, he was the good fit for it. Yeah. So, the character that is, but so, yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> But I know but, uh, I'll, I'll let you talk about the next person here. I think you're going to be, um, what was it? No, I'm sorry. What was it? Ruth White? No, that's uh, that's not that's what I'm not talking about. Nan Martin, please. Nan Martin. I don't want to steal your thunder. I know you're excited about this one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm kind of excited about it. At least uh, so. Nan Martin, uh, she plays Laura Ford. This is uh, Horace's wife. 
Uh, she was in two other um, episodes, but the ones that were in the 80s, the uh, mm-hmm. the new rendition of the Twilight Zone that came back in the 80s. Um, but then she was also in Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors, of course, the best of the entire franchise. Yeah, she's Freddy's mom. Uh, so she was a nun. Um, we won't go into like what happened all there, but it was bad. But yeah, I was like, holy crap, that, that's that's Fred's mom. Uh, that's awesome. I also saw that she was in 26 episodes of the Drew Carey show. Um, and then one episode of the defenders. So, and her and, uh, Pat Hingle actually worked together a lot. Um, and they, they liked each other and they thought they had a good chemistry together, which again, the quieter moments, I think they were quite good together. And she has a very striking face and you could tell even with the black and white film that her eyes just, they were like a crystal blue. You could just see that even though it was black and white, like her eyes were just very, like when she finally got stern and told people to shut up, you're like, yep, sorry, ma'am. Sorry. Sorry, Nan. Hey, I'm just gonna sit here and be quiet. Yeah. I noticed that too, especially on the rewatch when she uh, talks to Horace's mom as sternly as she does. Like this was definitely the, the mom you didn't want to piss off if you were a kid, you know, that look was enough to just tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Calm down. So, um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, she, uh, other than that, I didn't really have anything else for her. I didn't really recognize anything else. So uh, moving on, we have Ruth White. Uh, she plays Horace's mom, Mrs. Ford. Uh, only appearance in Twilight Zone. Uh, she was in To Kill a Mockingbird. And then she was also uh, in Hang'em High with Pat. So that's a nice little connection. Yeah, um, that uh, that's... <laughs> I, I watched that for my year of the Western that I did for Invasion of the Podcast because I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a Clint Eastwood Western, and it, it's his first film that he actually made after like the, um, his work with um, uh, Leone uh, doing the Dollars trilogy, and um, not not a big fan of it. People can yell at me all they want to, and that's fine. It's just it's just like man, every time I turn a corner, it's like Hang'em High is just staring me in the face again, um, but. Yeah, uh, she she won an Emmy. I just want to mention that she was actually an actress that was in demand. Um, I I don't remember her for anything else. And if if it was a judge by her her scene towards the end of the episode, I, I would never hire her for anything. But that's just me. And again, I don't know if it was because of the episode or the director or what. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to really peg this episode for those type of character actors. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't think like, it was her it, fault is it the story. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it, it just, the whole thing felt like a stage play where it's like, Oh, this person has to have this moment and like talk to the audience and let them know what they're really feeling and thinking. And it's like, no, 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 Shh, it's television. We don't need that. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's her. And she plays into this episode. We'll talk about her too. And then, uh, next we have Philip Pine. Uh, he plays Leonard O'Brien. Um, that, that was uh, Horace's co-worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he d- does one other episode um, of The Twilight Zone, and that was The Four of Us Are Dying. Yeah, one of the early season one episodes. It's a good one. And I just I went back and looked because I know I, uh, he was actually in an episode of Hawaiian Eye, so take a drink. And Johnny Midnight, take a shot. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I had that too. And then um, he did a little bit of The Adventures of Superman as well. Hmm. And then next we have Vaughn Taylor. He plays Mr. Judson, uh, Horace's boss. Um, four other episodes, um, Time Enough at Last, Still Valley, and I Sing Body Electric. 
Yeah. So I, I challenge anybody, uh, like when you see Von Taylor, um, what you see in this episode, this is what he usually looks like. He looks like, like Walt Disney a little bit, right? If anybody remembers, go back and watch still Valley. He's the lead in that unrecognizable, like as the lead there versus here, because he's like this gruff, like Confederate soldier with like stubble and the way he carries himself and talks. It blows my mind that it's the same actor in both these roles. Um, mm. yeah. Uh, so like when I saw him, I was like, I know that name. Why? And I realized it's because of his previous work here. Does he play the boss in time enough at last? Like the bank boss. Yeah. He looks yeah, great. Okay. So he, I'm like, I, he did the, he's definitely got a, like a, a typecast for being the boss. Cause I'm like, I know I've seen this dude in another episode. And when I saw the, the, he was cataloged for time enough at last. I'm like, I think that was the boss yeah. in that one too. And, and I sing the body electric whenever the family's going to the showroom to pick out their, their, um, their electric grandmother or whatever. Um, he's the one working in the showroom. That's just like a bunch of different body parts on display. The episode itself isn't great, but the moment he's in there, just walking these kids around these, like this darkened room with like these solitary spotlights on a table, like full of like eyes and ears. Like that, that sounds like it's all sliced up, but they're like, they're like set up like, um, like displays, like at a store. And it's like, but it's still like, like oh, look at the right parts. Yeah. It's like, Oh, look at that. Look, it's a table full of eyes. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's, a bizarre moment, but he just leans into it. It feels very Vincent Price-ish with him walking around talking about all the pieces, parts that they can get. Um, so I do like Von Taylor. He's a little stilted here, but I think that's, again, I think that was supposed to be the point of the character. So, right. And we will see him again in season five. Um, probably selling some also- eyeballs to people. That's what I'm hoping. He's just an eyeball salesman. And <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then we we also uh, seen him in Psycho, mm. and then one episode of Hawaiian Eye. Nice. All right, take a drink. I, I just did, so I'm just encouraging everybody else to too. So, all right, who's next? And then next uh, we have Mary Carver. Uh, she plays Betty O'Brien. Uh, we don't see her very much in this episode, but uh, this is her only appearance in Twilight Zone. Uh, she did an uh, episode of Tales from the Dark Side. And she was in arachnophobia. That was the note I had to put down too. I just, I remember arachnophobia being a big, a big deal. And I was excited to see it as a kid. And John Goodman was great in that. Oh, hell yeah. I love John Goodman in that movie. <laughs> he's great. Just where he shoots the one spider over and over again with like the pesticide and it's not working. So he just goes over and just steps on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, next um, we have Jerry Davis uh, plays Harm, uh, Harmy, the He's the little kid in the yeah, parts the, of this episode. The, the, the smile um, bothers I, me. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, I know. Right. And then uh, this was it. Like, this is all I could find for him as noteworthy. Like, this episode and then nothing else. He had, like, eight total credits, and they were all, like, um, you know, One Tooth Ginger. I think that was the other seven credit titles that was given to him. That's not true, but that's how it feels. Yeah. And then... uh Another child from uh, this was uh, Jim, uh, Jim Titus. He plays the young version of Horace. Um, literally, he had two credits, and this was one of them. And that was it. I can see how this would not you. This would not make you want to act again. <laughs> <laughs> eh, whatever. It's kid, kid actors here are very hit or miss. Yeah, I mean, in general, I I, I don't know how like serviceable they can be in shows like uh, the twilight zone. 
But if the casting's right, and you know, we've seen lots of kids act, kid actors, and other episodes, and they they do very well. But something like this, I I, I don't know. It was mm. it was kind of a mess for me as far as the kid actors. Yeah, for sure. So, yep, and that's it for my part of the cast. Do you have anybody else? Yeah, I got. Uh, I just got two more. Bella Buck was the yell, the window yelling lady. That's not her official title in the the script, but that's what I listed her as. Uh, only Twilight Zone appearance. And the only reason I want to mention is she had 73 credits, so she was a working actress getting paid to do bits like this, so good on her. Uh, and then I have Billy E. Hughes as kid. I don't know which one this was. Um, only Twilight Zone appearance. I just like, it's just like, oh, well, I'm glad that they, like, not all of the kids in the gang are listed, but just one of them is listed as kid. So good on you, Billy E. Hughes. You're in the Twilight Zone, and I don't know which one you were. That's it. That's all I, I got. For- I always find it fascinating to go through the IMDb of the episodes because some episodes will show, I don't know, 40 different people in, in the different sets and that and you're like, for the love of God, let me not have to go through this entire IMDb. And in other episodes where we see larger casts like that, they only list like a selective few of, of those people. I don't really understand where they're, where their importance level is for certain ca- yeah, uh, characters. Cause, cause the, the wiener cart guy had more screen time than some of the kids, you know, and, uh, the bread and butter couple, like you just, you know, whatever. I just, um, but yeah, it's, it's usually whatever, like the, whatever I'm watching an episode, this is a little behind the scenes talk for everybody. Like it, it's not that I'm not excited watching twilight zone. Cause I am. It's just that anytime it cuts to a new scene and I see like 30 people on the screen, I'm like, son of a bitch. I have to look up probably who all these people are. No, <laughs> like it becomes like, why can't this episode just be like one guy in a room and he's like looking out a window and that's the whole episode. I could one actor. I got it done, you know, but sometimes it takes a little bit longer to fill the notes out. Yeah. Well, there was one episode that we had done where there was literally only three people in the entire episode, and that was it. And I was like, this is so easy tonight. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, if you go back and watch uh, The Invaders, it's just, um, oh, the one lady that's in it, and that's it. And you're like, oh, well, I can, we can talk about her. That's fine. Um, so, anyway, that's that's our cast and crew. Uh, let's just get on to the 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 weird surly intro and I'll 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 say why I feel it's weird after we let him say what he's gonna say. Mr. Horace Ford, who has a preoccupation with another time. A time of childhood, a time of growing up, a time of street games, stickball, and hide and go seek. He has a reluctance to check out a mirror and see the nature of his image, proof positive that the time he dwells in has already passed him by. But in a moment or two, he'll discover that mechanical toys and memories and daydreaming and wishful thinking and all manner of odd and special events can lead one into a special province, uncharted and unmapped, a country of both shadow and substance known as the Twilight Zone. I just the last few sentences there, I'm like, that's like almost like identical to like the intro to the Twilight Zone in general, like, you know, a place of substance and shadow. Like, it's just. Rod, are you just, you just kind of, you know, are you, are you just kind of done with this one? Like, you're like, I don't know how to get out of this. I guess I'm just going to state the show's thesis again. Yeah. He's just dialing it in at that point. He's like, I, he's like, just give me, get me out of here. Get me another cigarette. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Daddy needs his Nicks, you know, uh, but he needs his Oasis cigarettes. Um, but no, I just, it was just weird. I was like, really? Like, I understand that his involvement in the series was less going in here. 
And it's also weird that he actually has, we'll, we'll get to the end of the episode. I was teasing this to Terry before we started recording. There's an interesting story about how this episode got here. Uh, it certainly had a hand in it. So you think he'd be a little bit more passionate about his intro here, but whatever it's neither here nor there. So yeah. Um, Terry, kick us off here. Where, where are we at in this incredible world of Horace Ford? Okay, so we open up in an office area. Uh, this is Horace's office. He's a toy, a toy designer. So he's just uh, hanging out in his office, and all of a sudden Leonard comes in, and he wants to talk about the, the toy that Horace had worked on and they're about to put into um, manufacturing. Um, he's criticizing some of the things about it and saying that the boss is basically not going to go for it, that he's got to make some changes uh, to to the toy and basically the entire time that his buddy Leonard is trying to have a a normal work discussion with him Horace is just being a complete goofball like he's he pulls out a pop gun and he shoots him with the pop gun and he, he's got a little remote controlled or a, a wind up mouse on his um, draft board like he's just a complete cornball yeah I just in, just the first time Pat Engel opens his mouth and shoots that cap gun at uh, his, his coworker where he just, he, he starts going like a mile a minute about everything. And the problem is, is that it's not that Pat Hingle isn't saying the words. It's just something about his, um, his, his tone that it's like you. And I think, I mean, it's by design that you're, you're supposed to be kind of dizzy with every time he goes off on these rants, but it's like, just, just, I wrote my notes here 50 seconds into this episode and I don't like it. I actually wrote the words I hate, uh, but it's just, he comes off. So just like, Oh, you say, you say goofball, you say cornball. I, I just, just abrasive because he just, he's in his own world and I get it. I get it, but it doesn't, it, I think we're supposed to take this journey with him and, and sympathize with him. But, the first few tastes you get of Horace, I am not sympathetic to him whatsoever. Right. It it makes you really wonder uh, how he landed the job in the first place. Because again, like I said, he's not, he doesn't seem very work oriented. (laughs) He's sitting there being silly, you know? Well, I mean, the whole thing of him being a toy designer, I guess there's supposed to be a certain amount of like, you know, uh, eccentricity put baked in. And I, before we go forward though, I just want to mention what, what kind of toy was it, Terry? Like what, what did they call it? A robot, a robot toy. That's what they called it. It was a robot toy. Uh, and I like that. Like when, when I pulled that clip from season one, the lonely, it's like, I don't know if the word robot was like, as like a big a thing. I, it has to be, it's sci-fi, but I feel like in this episode we're reaching that 50, 50 mark where some people call it a robot. Other people call it a robot. <laughs> like, and I, I was just like, are, did we just not agree at that time what that was called? But whatever. I thought every time the boss called it a robot, I smiled just because I love the way the word said. It's just so silly. It is silly. I, d- I don't understand it, but it's, you know that there is a clear difference between how certain people are saying it and other people are saying it because Horace later says to his wife, the robot toy yeah. says robot. Yeah. So I don't know why that was. So the, the big thing um, is that his, his design's good, but it has too much going on. So in terms of when they're going to produce it, they can't produce it effectively to make a profit. So they, they, uh, um, you know, his, his, uh, 
his buddy's trying to tell him like, you know, you need to you know, like tone this down and figure it out. And he's basically being, he's trying, you get the, the idea that his friend's trying to be like softening, like the blow of like, you need to be ready for this when the boss comes in and asks you about it. But Horace doesn't care. Like he sits down at his desk, he starts to um, like doodle something and then he just makes a paper airplane and goes, throws it out the window. And that's, uh, that's where we get Sterling's intro. Yeah. And then um, when we come back, it's still like the same scene. And he can see that he watches the plane go down into the street level. And behind him, uh, Laura, his wife, um, walks past his office. And she goes into Leonard's office mm-hmm. to discuss uh, plans for for the birthday party that they're they're going to have for Horace. Well, I like that there's the line there. It's like, well, what what'd you get him? And um and they're like, oh, it's a smoking jacket. He's like, the perfect gift for a 38-year-old. That shows he's grown up. And I'm like, wait, no, I'm older than 38. I don't want to, I mean, maybe I want a smoking jacket, like, ironically. But I don't think that's, like, a badge of honor. But that would be like, hey, hey, Paul, it's your birthday. I got you a jacket. I'd be like, oh, that's cool. And, I, and I'd try to pretend to be excited about it. I, I hate that I'm still, I'm in my 40s. And I'm like, is it a game? Is it a toy? I just, you know. I'm much more interested in that than a smoking jacket. Yeah, it's, but it almost seems like by the way that Leonard says it, that it's like the, the rite of passage. Well, now he's got his, uh, smoking jacket. He can finally fit into being 38. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, to, to, to spoil like the one, the one thing in this episode that made me laugh out loud was, uh, when we get to some of the elements of the surprise birthday party and it, it was a delight when something popped in and I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, there was a certain bit about the birthday party that made me very excited. And I laughed when I saw it. Um, just because it's like, I, I want that at a birthday party at one point. Well, we'll I'll leave it at that. I, I think Carrie knows what I'm talking about. And if you don't, I'll let you know later. Um, I'm just a man of mystery today. Like I'm just, I'm distracted. I'm going to, I'm going to make a paper airplane as we're like watching and talking about this episode. I'm going to, ramble real quickly and real loudly about places you've never been and people you don't know. It's going to be amazing. Just don't fire any uh, cap guns right now. I don't think my ears could take the loud bangs. <laughs> no, I'll just open the window. I'm sure you could hear like uh, remote control cars outside running around. I'll be fine. Uh, so right. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so then that's when we get Judson coming in uh, the boss to talk to uh, Horace about the, the robot and basically he's, he's trying to be like, yeah, this, this is what it is, but you need to make changes. And Horace is just like, he just digs his heels in and gets like indignant. And again, I understand we're supposed to like, be like, this is the dreamer. This is this childlike spirit, but it's just, he's been at this job for 15 years and I do not understand how, and not, not in terms of inventiveness, but just his interactions with people. Right. And that's, that's the thing. It's like, this really makes me want to unpack the rest of who Horace is and how he's managed his professionalism at this company and that, and how much leeway uh, Mr. Judson has given him in the past. I mean, I, it almost seems like this is the first time that Judson's ever dealt with Horace and his inability to like take direction. <laughs> yeah. Which I mean, you know, it's 15 years. This, this cannot have been the first time, you know, like it's just, I, I, yeah. Anyway. So then, you know, they, they come to loggerheads and then Judson walks out the, uh, Laura overhears all of this, but pretends to like to sidestep it. 
and comes in and tells me like, Hey, it's like six o'clock. We need to go. We should go home and, and whatever. And I could at least appreciate that. She just saw him kind of get dressed down by his boss and she's not going to talk about it. Like I, there's a little bit of like saving, saving face there. I second appreciate that. Like I, I don't think that she always is given the most to do in this episode, but I think that she is like the true, the true through line through here, because I think she's the most genuine and you get, you, you do get that caring from her throughout it. Yeah. With, with sprinklings of still like that, this bit of, uh, I don't know, misunderstanding. Oh yeah. Uh, plenty of that. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So we, we follow them home to uh, where his mother also lives with them as well. So she she says that dinner is almost ready and all that, and they start to sit down and um, basically discuss the day and that. Um, and his mom seems to notice in within his eyes that something's wrong. Like uh, she has like the, you know that mother look. Like oh, I know something's wrong. What's <laughs> do you have a fever? What is it? You know. And he doesn't. He obviously does not want to talk about it. And he sidesteps the discussion like almost immediately and goes into talking about being a kid again. And Randolph street again. And it's just like one more time. And he like, um, I, I, I'm sure we know people like this where it's like, just give them a minute. And you know what? I'll, I'll even admit, I'll, I'll own up to this. I I'm sure I've been this person. I'm probably still am to a little degree. And I hate to admit it, but like, when I was younger, I, I worked four summers at uh, Cedar Point, which is an amusement park here in Ohio, but people know it around the world uh, for roller coasters and stuff, blah, 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 blah. Whenever, you know, you're like, you know, late teens, early 20s, and you have those summers, every single thing is going to remind you of that one great summer that you had. And it's just, yeah, I must have been this asshole for a while. Uh, so I can at least, you know, relate. And maybe that's also why I felt frustration. I'm just like, Oh God, he goes, he's going on again about working at Cedar point. I mean, being on Randolph street, you know, I'm not projecting. Yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely, it fits the mold of like the, the guy who remembers the good old days or, you know, uh, glory days, uh, like, uh yeah. when, you know, times were good and times were fun. And, and I, I mean, I, I do this too. It's like, I talk about being a kid, but kids weren't being a kid wasn't the best time but i definitely remember the good times and that's the ones i talk about but he seems to be so focused on it that even when uh major parts of discussion come up he's immediately steers back to the that street that he grew up on and being a child yeah and even his mom kind of waves it off says you know like it wasn't that great and he just goes on and on and on um so then uh, he decides then that he's going to go back that night. Cause he, he goes to, cause they have like a, like the, he blows up at the table for whatever reason. I, I, for, I forget why. I mean, I've watched this episode twice. I do apologize. Um, <laughs> just, I, so again, here I am when I'm going to sidetrack, I'm going to talk about my days earlier. No, the second time I watched this Terry, you're going to laugh. I, when I went to go take notes and like cut audio, I watched like the first, like, you know, what? 26 minutes. I'm, I think I took an eight hour break between the first half and the second half. And I found everything else in the world to do too. <laughs> so uh, my, um, my, my, uh, recall of this might be a little fuzzy. So I apologize, but there was just a bit of like, I'll get back to it. And I'm like, Oh, I could do this now. Like, so there was a lot of hesitancy on my part to watch this a second time. Well, the, I, I've watched it more recently. So I definitely 
uh, know the the scene that you're talking about and why he's a little bit more upset. Um, because it actually upset me a little bit too. And it's um, he's talking to his wife um, about being ten and like all of those things. But his wife says to him, "No one cares about when you were ten. Like, <laughs> yeah, way to support the dude and <laughs> like his past. Like, who the hell would say that to their loved one? Like, no one cares about this time and place in your life." Just found it very rude. Yeah, and it wasn't set up like the best. Even like, even though you get the notion that this is something he does often, and you don't know how long they've been married, so you know. <laughs> Maybe she's had enough, but then you also allude to that she has um, a lot of times where she doesn't understand. So it's like, how does she have like perfect clarity and then also confusion? Like, and that I think that's I think that's a problem of the script and not the actress because she gets molded into what they need her to be scene per scene, whether it's assertive and caring or the the you know the weepy wife that can't control things. And I think that's a disservice to her. But yeah, you're right. That sets them off. Yeah, and, I, and it really made me feel, like, attacked as well because, you know, I'm almost 37 years old. And she says to him, you're almost 38 and you don't act like you're almost 38. And he says, who cares? You know, who who cares? Yeah. And I, I, I feel like I'm a big man child. But, you know, if my wife were to say that to me, I would feel deeply offended because she bought into this in the beginning. <laughs> That's fair. And also, did you guys notice that Terry was fishing for a smoking jacket to be sent to him for his 38th? Did you guys pick up on that? I did. So I know he's looking for a smoking jacket now. Yeah. And then I'll finally start smoking too. Right. <laughs> well, I'll just get you, I'll get you like a vaping vest. Do you think that would be okay? Like versus like a whole jacket? As long as I can do that while we uh, cast. Yeah. Um, no. All right. So thank you. I'm not doing that. Uh, so yeah. So then he, you know, he gets frustrated. He goes, he goes to the bedroom and then he decides that he's going to go to Randolph street and, and go back and, and to see everything that he remembers. And, um, so then he goes to Randolph street and it's actually, it is kind of hustling and bustling. Um, he goes to cross the street and you see like this big sanitation truck that pulls down the lane, like spraying liquid and, um, hopefully it's sanitation liquid as opposed to, I don't know, unsanitation liquid. And uh, right behind the sanitation truck though, is this guy pushing a wiener cart down the middle of the street. It says weenies three cents each, um, which before Terry and I started recording, I was like, I would buy a wiener for three cents. Don't question where it came from. That's a value and it will fill you up. But you know, um, Horace is like, no, I'm good. So Wiener man moves away. Um, and then as Horace is walking around, he ends up, uh, walking between a couple that's holding hands. They break their grip and they, they hold hands again and say bread and butter. And they laugh because that was a thing that happened back then. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with bread and butter or not, but it, it's, it showed up in the twilight zone previously. No, I never heard that saying before. Yeah, it was. There was an episode, Nick of Time, whenever uh, it was with Bill Shatner uh, in it, where he was very superstitious, and there was a whole thing where he and his uh, his wife were walking along, and they they said bread and butter, and I, I remember looking into the whole thing. It was like this whole like they go together like bread and butter, like it, it's this whole like superstitious thing. Um, so yeah. Anyway, at least I, I like to. I would like to have seen your face watching that without any type of context. Be like, why the hell are they saying bread and butter and then laughing? Um, but yeah. Anyway, 
Uh, he Horace is kind of amused with this stuff as he's just watching the street, and there's the lady that yells for her son from the window, and then he's walking down the street, and there's a there's a, 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 a like a drunk guy walking out of a building and bumps into him and kind of threatens him. And then there's an old lady that drops her like bag and horse helps her and kind of smiles. And he's just kind of, it's like, um, I don't like the look what his face is just, it, he is amused, but it's almost like, he's like, yeah, this is, this is where I need to be. This is, this is what I, everything I remember it being. And it's just, he has this look of like, like satisfaction on his face. Yeah, it, it's 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 like uh, invoking all of these uh, these memories and thoughts of yesterday of, and it, it's it, he's it's really like tickling his fancy to see everything this way. Yeah, and then he ends up seeing uh, like a bunch of kids um, go running by because he's because che- he so the big thing is Horace looks at his watch, checks the time. These kids come bustling by him, causes the watch to fall down. And then as he sees these kids like stealing watermelons or whatever, and then apples, he sees one kid turn around and it's this, um, this really, this, this, this kid, it's the stuff of nightmares. Let me tell you that, um, <laughs> he's, he's, it's this ginger kid with like, he's missing one of his front teeth and he just kind of has like this, like partial smile and he's just staring at Horace. And then one of the other kids that says, is like, you know, uh, you know, Hermie get over here. And then the Hermie turns around and runs with the kids and, and you just see Horace is just like gobsmacked. Like he is taken aback by everything. Um, so then we find out that, uh, um, and I wrote my notes here. You can tell Hermes a ginger, his missing tooth is creepier each time I see it. So that bothered me more and more <laughs> the more I saw it. Um, so then he goes home, Horace goes home and, um, he's trying to tell Laura what happened. And he goes on and on about the things he saw and whatever. And then, so this compounds probably what you said earlier about, uh, him, like no one cares about you when you were 10. Cause he's trying to tell her, like, I saw kids I grew up with. She's like, she's like, that doesn't make sense. They would not be the same age. And she's like, Horace, you're talking like a child. Like she just snaps at him. And I, I wrote, she's right. <laughs> like, I, I just, I couldn't help it. I was like, Laura has a point. He, he is kind of talking crazy right now. Yeah, especially in that sequence, like um, describing something like that, it'd be like, what did you smoke before you got home tonight? Yeah. Um, and then here, here I wrote in my notes as well. Horse has two modes, loudly obnoxious and loudly obnoxious, but wistful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not true. He has, when he's, when Pat Hingle's quiet and more reflective, that's when you actually give a shit about the character. Like he's actually taking a moment to try to process. And that's when I actually feel sympathy for him. But ever the rest of the time, he is just like this fire truck, just screaming. Like I get that, um, with the medium of television and that what our perception of acting and presentation has changed over time. I'm not saying that like, like TV at this time is alien and you can't get the performances because clearly we've seen some amazing things in the show, but I still think there's like these, these um, like vestigial notions of like, you've got to play to the back rows with some of your performances. And I think Pat Hengel was like, he was just, just, you know, projecting to like the farthest row and like the playhouse. And he didn't need to. Yeah. He, there are definite parts where it's like you wish you could just reach through the screen and be like, 
settle down, dude. You're overacting this like crazy right now. Yeah. So again, like, so whenever he, uh, you know, <laughs> that moment passes, but the, he's, you can see he's struggling with this notion of like, you know, what happened. And then, uh, um, is that whenever he goes to bed and there's the knock at the door and his watch is returned the first time? I think that's what happens, right? Um, yeah, the, yeah. So she, she's clearly upset him even more from what she had to give him in response. And then, yeah, there's a ring at the doorbell and there's the goofy kid again. <laughs> and she gives, he gives the watch, which yeah. I, I can't like <laughs> what makes the scenes with that child even more upsetting is they just give him this blank look. <laughs> I don't think, that, I don't think they give him the look. I think he, that's just the way he looks. I'm just, I'm going to throw that out there where it's like, Hey kid that plays Hermie. We don't even really can. Re- we can't even remember your name. Just you're good. Just keep your mouth open a little bit and don't blink. <laughs> you're like, you know, you're going to, you're going to be right up there with the wing Walker and all the other stuff in the twilight zone. That's going to get people nightmares. <laughs> yeah well i guess so but <laughs> but i okay let me let me just state this though the the repeated beat of this and we'll we'll get into this as we're talking about the story and his his presence it that's the one thing that really unnerves me this entire time the more i think about it not i'm i'm making jokes it's a kid actor he has missing a tooth whatever but just each time the doorbell rings, you're like, Oh gosh, this is actually bigger than just horse having a moment. Right. And I, there was one thing that, um, we didn't happen to mention in the sequence before this though, on the street, what the hell is that word that they keep on? They, they use that ring. What is it? Oh, it's the game. Thing. Yeah. Something like, I don't know that at all, but there's a bit where Horace explains that that's supposed to be part of a game that they play because there's actually, so when we get to the next scene after um, the watch is returned, horse is in his office and he's kind of like, he's like just distracted and his, and Leonard comes in and and Leonard's like, Oh, so what happened? And then, you know, horse starts going off talking about something and then he just gets focused, like laser focused on kids wearing knickers, you know, (laughs) like, it's just like, remember when they used to wear knickers and that was the worst thing. And Hey, do you remember, Hey, do you remember like the, like the great depression we'd eat dirt or whatever he goes on and on about? He's like, that was the best (laughs) time ever. You know, remember what Campbell's soup only had two flavors, you know, like he keeps going on about that stuff. Um, and, and Leonard's like, well, I just came in to see how you're doing. I need to, I need to go not be here right now. Um, and there's the whole bit too, whenever, while Horace is like going off, like being a pinball, he mentions having a Mickey mouse watch and he's like, Hey, do you remember having a Mickey mouse watch? It's like, maybe he didn't, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, before, uh, Leonard walks in too, uh, we see Horace on the phone and he's just being, Oh, that's dick. right. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. He's just yelling at somebody. So yeah, so we, that, that it's a brief sequence, but you know, he's a dick on the phone to them. Leonard t- does his thing as Leonard leaves. Um, uh, a second later, uh, Mr. Judson comes in and yeah. he questions him about the, the call. Like I was, I heard you talking to my, uh, assistant or my secretary or whatever. Uh, and why were you being that way? And he's like, Oh, she was yelling at me. He's like, I was right there. She was not yelling at you at all. Yeah. That just sounds like, um, this is 1963. I don't think they have an HR department, but they need one, you know, like, yeah. 
but like the way Judson is just like, no, Horace, that's not what happened. Why did you do that? And he's trying to give Horace like every, um, like opportunity to like calm down and own up. Um, you know, so like, and he doesn't, and Horace just always just keeps Horace is his own worst enemy in terms of like, he, he wants to be defiant and, and, and be like, I don't have to be the age I am, but then he still won't like, you're getting paid to do a job and he won't like there's, he won't accept the structure that's been given. That's, that's part of this, even though he's been being paid to be creative and design toys, you know? And, um, that's also frustrating where it's like you, you have a dream job, you know, and you're going to be petulant and throw fits. Yeah. And I think that there is definitely a balance that he must've had at some point Yeah, if he's been working there for 15 years, but he's just blown off the handle and is very defiant. And it just doesn't make any sense that especially the way that Mr. Judson is talking to him, that, it's, it seems like he's he is being as cool and collective about the moment and really trying to understand where I think most bosses at this point would be like, get your shit together or else. Yeah, and it, it maybe that, that hints towards more Judson realizing that when you're dealing with creatives, creative types, that maybe you need to meet each person where they're at and kind of have a conversation like, you know, not that I'm saying that he will allow Horace to just be a wrecking ball in the office, but like, I'm sure that, you know, and just your, you know, your inter like office relationships that you may have with coworkers, whatever job it is. There's just times where it's like, I know this person, I know they're not going to respond well to this, but they will respond well to this and taking that tract will still get us to the resolution we need because I acknowledge who they are and I, and I know the best way to approach the situation. Like, like I'll give you an example. Like I know me, like I, um, I don't always deal with like, like news. I don't want to hear all the time. Like whatever. And not that I'm saying like, you know, like Paul, you're fired. Like that's, I'm just like, no, get out of here. I want the robot the way I want it now. But there's just times like you get something at work where it's like, this is a process change. And it's like, it's like people, so the people I've reported to realize that I need like 10, 15 minutes to like process and get over. Cause if you start coming, talking about it before then I'm going to be a little hard headed, but just give me a minute to like digest and process. And I'm a much better person to talk to about things, you know? And I feel like Judson's trying to do this with Horace where it's like, I have to be the grown up. I'm going to be direct. And maybe that's worked before. It's not working now. And that, I guess I, that makes sense from what, what you're saying. I mean, you build the chemistry and you understand that the chemistry is what makes everything else work out well. Yeah. But I just feel like once you've uh, you've met this kind of opposition from an employee, you kind of have to pull the stops a little bit. Oh, but. Yes, <laughs> you're right. Um, you know, Horace is already, he's already given enough rope to hang himself. It's just, you know, there's just going to be one more push and that's coming soon. Um but yeah, it's just that whole sequence. It's just it, for, um, so he, he goes home, um, and he's having dinner with his, his wife and his, his mother. Uh, and 
it, it's kind of a replay of the earlier scene where he like he, he's a little little distraught and also his mother th- we didn't get into there's the bit at the first time where she was like worrying over the chicken she's like telling her daughter-in-law to like I think it's like leather and then she says to Horace it's just not like it used to be so you get the there's these small seeds of like she also does the same thing he does but she uses the past to justify why everything's just not good now, as opposed to him where he just always looks back at the past being, it was the best. But then with this, he comes home. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm late. And you know, and she's like, Oh, does somebody jump? Like, wow, that is the most immediate reaction to get to. It's like, did somebody jump off a building? Is that why you're late? Can I have the details? That's, um, yeah. Yeah. It's a subway. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Did somebody jump into the subway? And it's like, did she watch the very first episode of the season where uh, somebody was having robot noises in their head and they just shoved a woman into the train? Like maybe that's what she was hoping for. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, but he, Horace correctly calls her out. He's like, why do you, why are you always focused on tragedy? Um, and they, you know, they have this, this dinner conversation and Laura's like, Hey, we should go to a double feature tonight. It'd be a lot of great. It'd be a lot of fun. And he's like, nah, I'm going back to Randolph street because it went really well the last time. So he runs right back off to Randolph street and, um, everything, literally everything except for his reaction plays out the same as it did before the sanitation truck, the wiener man, um, you know, the bread and butter, the angry drunk, the lady yell at the window, the, the, um, groceries falling. Um, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting the sequence to be the same. Yeah, and it is exactly the same. Um, the, all, the all the timing is exactly the same. So uh, his responses seem to be the exact same too, which I honestly at this point I was somewhat aggravated by because I was hoping that at least there would be more clarity to him to like maybe I don't know go a different direction or respond in a possibly different way. But he seemed to respond the exact same way. I mean, he got a little bit more hesitant whenever with the kids because he actually is, uh, at this point, I think he, um, he follows the kids into the alley and he's trying to listen to what they're saying. And, um, and the kids are all like bitching to each other about, they're like, I can't believe this. You know, he didn't invite us to his birthday. And it's like, thought he was our friend. And it's like, we're going to marbleize him. I'm like, I don't know what that means, but anytime you, you, you use a word that's like a verb and it's threatening, I'm, I'm going to guess it's not good. Um, so, you know, he sees that and then we, we get back to him, back to his place, talking to Laura about like, you know, he saw what he saw again and her, her response is, I want you to see a doctor. Um, that's, that's not the incorrect response. I put my notes here. She should also see a divorce lawyer, but Hey, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, the guy's just stuck in the past and keeps coming home night after night talking about the same thing. Yeah, and I, I just, I, I understand that her uh, frustrations are real, but it seems to be very quick that she jumps to the you. You should probably see a doctor. Response, you know, yeah. after what one twenty four hour sequence of events. Yeah, but I think it's it's implying a longer tale of him being focused on the past too much and kind of being just who he is. Uh, I'll put my notes here. Maybe this is what drove her to become a nun later. Um, but, <laughs> you know. Um, 
So uh, he goes to bed. Um, the ginger drops the watch off again. She's creeped out by it. Cause when the doorbell rings, you can see that she's like, Oh no, what? And there's that creeping terror that she knows like something, something's not right. And she's part of the loop too, though. She's not a, like actively aware of what all that means. So she's trying to tell him that he needs help. And she is kind of denying that something weird is going on and you can read it in her body language. Right. And it, it's becoming a little bit more curious to her, but I don't know if that really reflects on the rest of her demeanor and how the other events play out. Like, despite the fact that this child that, you know, brings back the watch net, she seems still determined as before to give the same responses to her, uh, Horace about everything. Like she's still determined to to say, well, you, you gotta be nuts, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you're right. But maybe, maybe that's, and maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into this is that that's, um, it's natural to want to project like you're telling somebody else like, no, 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 no. You're, you're the one that's having issues whenever it's like, and maybe if, you know, if you keep the light on them, then you don't have to think about yourself as much. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but you get, you definitely get that in her performance. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, in responding in responding to him possibly going to see a doctor, I think that she just is giving up. She doesn't know where to, help at this point. Yeah. And, and, and you get that desperation out of her. And I think that, I think that's valid. Um, so then we get, uh, another, um, sequence at the office where, um, you know, with, uh, she, she talks to Leonard about like, Hey, like, like horses know I'm here, which I just want to point out. He mentions the whole thing. He's like, uh, better like, you know, aren't you supposed to be making a birthday cake? You know, like, I don't want to see a store-bought cake with just your talent toots he doesn't say toots but you know like it's it's like you know like uh, i think i have my notes here somewhere i was like this episode should have been called sad men as a you know like because it feels like this feels very much almost like adjacent to mad men where it's like you know hey honey how's it going not in the kitchen eh, guess i'm gonna smoke and, and drink at work and yell at people you know i'm don draper uh, but anyway um so she tells tells him like hey I, I want a horse to see a doctor. I'm concerned. And he's like, okay, I'll talk to him. I'll talk to him. So Leonard goes in and there's actually a nice moment of horse is like, he's just kind of looking at his desk and distant. And you see Laura, like, like, like leave the office. And it's like, it's a nice, like, like quiet moment in this episode. That's not full of them, of her, like looking concerned and walking out of the office without horse seeing that I, I don't, I, I, that camera placement's nice. I like that. Um, so Leonard goes to talk to him, like trying to just kind of just like pick his brain and talk about things and was asking about another toy I was working on or whatever. Uh, and then that's when we get, um, Mr. Judson coming back in and be like, you know, Hey horse, I need to talk to you. And, and Leonard's like, Oh, let's go in my office and talk. And Judson's like, no, I, you know, daddy needs to talk to the kid now. And Leonard's like, okay. And leaves, you know, whatever. Um, and that's whenever uh, Judson's like, "Hey, if something's going on, I do. I'm, I am concerned for you. You need to take a, a leave of absence so you can get better." Basically, he's like, "Something's wrong. Your behavior's untenable. This is my option. I care about you, but you can't be here right now." And then Horse just reads that completely wrong and just explodes. Yeah. Well, this is definitely in response to um, the fact that Horace has not worked on the robot. Yeah, the boy. robot. Yeah. 
Um, and he, he seems befuddled by this, that like he hasn't, the, that Mr. Judson has found out that there was no progress on this. And he really, he's, I mean, he's trying to stay as uh, friendly, but business forward as possible. Yeah. And so, and, and I also think it's a little progressive in terms of this time and whenever the boss is like, you know, he even says to me, he's like, if something's wrong, there's nothing wrong in admitting it. It's like, that's a very, it's like you, you mentioned earlier. It's like, you would think that in this kind of workplace is like, pack your bags, you're out. Like they're giving horse every opportunity to get his head straight. And he just, he just, just kicks it away every single time and blames everybody else. Um, so then, um, he, you know, he gets fired and horses yells at him, tells him to leave the office or something. And it's like, you know, it's just, I don't know. It just, the whole thing is like, just get out of here. And then horse comes home. And, uh, actually let's see here. Um, this is before Horace walks in. My favorite part of the episode is that, um, Laura is sitting at the desk, I think. And, um, his mother comes in with the birthday cake. Um, Describe the birthday cake. This is my favorite cake of all time. There's like race cars on it, isn't there? <laughs> it's like it's like a race car, a tank, and everything. It's toys because he's a toy maker. But it just it's just like it's a kid's birthday cake, and I, I just I when that when that showed up on the screen, I laughed out loud. Like I lol'd by myself watching this. I was like, that's amazing, and I might be able to find an image of it on the internet right now. Just the way that I normally. When, when when I'm watching this on Netflix, it's easy for me to freeze the screen and, and, and take a screen cap. I can't do it at CBS All Access and Hulu because they're smart and they don't want me just, you know, taking their shit. Uh, but I want, I want a picture of that birthday cake because it's great. I just love it. I'll make sure that we can get that exact same birthday cake for you since you were so impressed by it. Well, considering I think, I think for my, my 40th, my wife made me a Spider-Man cake. So, I mean, no smoking jacket, but... Still pretty great though. I see. I I uh, I pretty much um like got drawn into the scene as well because for my thirtieth birthday, my mother got me a Spider Man DQ ice cream cake, oh, and I was that's amazing. I was the most. I know. I was like the most giddy little <laughs> schoolgirl when I got it too. Yeah, like my, my wife made me the Spider Man cake, and she uh, she didn't do a red velvet cake. She did a blue velvet cake, which I don't think she realized what that meant, and I didn't realize what that meant either at the time. Like, oh, it's blue velvet, like you know. Um, but I was so ecstatic that my wife made me a Spider Man cake. But Horace's cake has like uh, you know just toys. It's like it looks great, and I want it right now. Um, but so, and I also like there's the bit whenever the mother's like, "Do you think I bought enough potato chips?" I'm like what kind of life do you live in where it's like, I don't know. Is there enough chips? Like this is, this is the moral quandary of the day, you know, cause you know, everything's supposed to be leading up to his surprise party that night. Um, and I like that the, the Laura tells her mother-in-law, like, you know, just take the cake and put it somewhere. She's like, I don't know. Where do you think I should put it? She's like, your bedroom. I'm like, yeah. If, if a, um, if a birthday cake with a bunch of frosting and toy, t- and toy tanks and cars are on it, you can leave that in my bedroom too. I think I'd be okay with that. That's a pr- the appropriate space for it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then um, Horace comes home and re- reveals he's fired. And, and this goes into one of my least favorite parts of this very already loud and abrasive episode where um, 
his mom starts, she has like the soliloquy almost of like, what am I going to do? Like what's going on? And it's like, he lost his job. He's the only breadwinner in this house, which I get at 63. And that was a thing that could still be, you know, workable for everything. And she just goes on and on and on. And she just, at one point, um, she says, and I'm sure that if I did the math, it would be better, but she's like, um, where are you going to find $140 a week? And I laughed at that line too. Like, yeah, I was to- like, oh, geez, if that's if that's what the income loss is, like, I guess they're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Living in an apartment in New York, I think, you know, like, um, yeah, uh, I'll, 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 as we're talking, I'll look this up. So please, I want to look up what the cons- uh, currency conversion um, uh, it, we'll let you know. I'll let you know what one hundred forty dollars um, was at the time. Uh, so please continue on and I'll I'll, I'll, I'll internet up this uh, answer in a second. So yeah, she uh, the mother at this point is doing like an almost Shakespearean type, um, like rant, and she she's you know leaning into it, and um, Horace's wife Laura says basically to shut up and to get out of there, okay. so, so she could talk to her her husband in private. So. I don't know how accurate this is, but I, I, I apologize this episode. That is significant. Uh, $140 in 1963, if you were to calculate it today, that's $1,100 a week. Oh, wow. Sign me up. Yeah, right. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll make robots. I don't care. Whatever. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, so maybe she had a right to be upset. <laughs> like, where are you going to find $1,100 a week? I'm like, I don't know. Um maybe not live in New York. That's that's, but whatever. Anyway. So yeah, she, she has like this whole brief aside about like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, was it, I'm 60 some years old. I just shouldn't be afraid anymore. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess this is all interesting, but it's like, I, and I know it's supposed to kick Horace in the ass to be like, to grow up, but my God, is she like, so like self-focused. It also makes me not care about her either. Yeah, this like her her view of the situation is so uh, one sided, and it's not the kind of discussion you should be having with somebody who just lost their job, and like pretty much seems to be going through like a mental breakdown at the exact same time. So yeah. maybe that's just me, but that's not how I would approach the situation. <laughs> no, and then so she, you know, she goes off to probably uh, bury herself, her face into a, a you know, a, a toy cake, um, and then Horace is just like befuddled. He was like, one of my favorite lines also this episode. As much as that that whole thing, I felt brought this 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 already wobbly and frustrating episode to a complete stop was her moment. And again, I don't, I, the actress, I guess was fine. Like I said, she was in high demand later. Just that whole sequence annoyed the piss out of me. Um, he, he, he says to Laura, he's like, well, why did she have to cry? And her response is she's an old woman, Horace. Like, <laughs> like that's the default setting of like, yep, she's going to cry. That's what old women do. Yeah, I'm not sure what kind of response that really was supposed to be. I think that would, if 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 I had to peg it for anything, it would just be more out of like anger and confusion of not knowing what the hell to say about her. Yeah, but she was definitely pissed at the mom at that point for good reason. Oh, for sure. And because uh, at one point she's like, "I am going to talk to my husband," and basically like like she gives her like that death stare, and it was great. Uh, but then, um, you know. They have a fight and he, he storms out. He's going to go back to Randolph street 
And then within seconds of him leaving, the doorbell rings and suddenly it's a surprise party. So like there was like 30 people in the hallway. They didn't see him stop off like a minute ago. And Laura's like, I don't know what to do. And she's probably thinking, did we, did we buy enough potato chips for this? I don't know. Um, so yeah. So horse goes back to Randolph street. Everything's the same except I mean, this time around. He just looks, he looks defeated. Like, like, and I, and I get the allegory of like, you know, if you want to live in the past, the the past never changes and his face sells that. That's a good point. I didn't really think about it in that context, but it definitely gives you that reality and, um, and, and understanding that where he is in this exact moment and how his, his now reality isn't really shaping up to be what it was either. Yeah. So then at this time he follows the kids into the alley um, and he confronts them. And this is when the episode just, it, it, it takes a turn and, and not in a bad way, but it's just, I don't know if it's, if it's sold very well because the kids are bitching about not being invited to this other person's birthday party. And Horace is like, Oh, you guys don't understand. Just listen to me. Then it cuts to him being a kid. Um, and then, then the, the, the group of kids start talking to him directly. And one of them calls him a dopey nut, which I think is funny. And then they're going to marbleize him, which I think might mean, you know, um, make sure that he has a lot of fat in his meats so that they cook well. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, because you, you need to have that fat in there for the flavor. But they just start just beating the shit out of him. And um, so at that point, uh, after we get um, we get the watch being brought back to Laura because the, the party, well, actually there was a whole bit too, whenever he hadn't come home before the watch shows up and she's like, I don't know what to do. And then again, first strong as the character of Laura is through most of this, she's sitting at her, her, like you know, her little desk with the phone and phone book with her mother-in-law over her shoulder. And she's like, I don't know. Like, give me, she's like, just give me the name of a doctor. It's like, you're better than this. You know, being being distraught and not knowing what to do is one thing, but just being like, I don't know, give me the name of a doctor. Um, no. Yeah, and then that's when the doorbell rings, I believe, and then she, then uh, Ginger McGee is there to hand her a watch, and it's um, it's a Mickey Mouse watch, and that's actually a pretty interesting payoff because he was talking about it earlier, owning it was a kid. And this is the third time she was brought the watch and it's different and it's a kid's watch. And the look on her face is, you know, she is, she is terrified and that works for me. Yeah. And it, this, they definitely thought that it was going to be Horace at this point too, because they shut the, the lights off and everything. And oh, that's right. The people, open, the party goers are still there. I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. As they open up the door, it's more of a shadowy figure. It kind of was reminiscent of a thing from another world when they see the creature in the doorway. So when they flip on the lights, you can see it's that goofy kid again. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then she goes to Randolph street and this time <clears throat> it, there's nothing there. It's just a street. There isn't a wiener man. There isn't any of that stuff going on. Uh, it's just, it's just a street that looks vacant. It's, it's seen better days. And she ends up uh, wandering down the alley where Horace had went to go get marbleized. And she, uh, sees a kid lying on the ground face down and she turns him over and, and, and you, you get the notion that she knows it's him, but, but she's like, just her brain can't handle what's going on, which again, not wrong. 
And when she turns away to kind of have a mental like freak out, she turns back and Horace is a full grown man again. And, um, she, you know, she talks to him and the episode immediately betrays itself where he's like, Oh, this has been weird. He's like, can we not talk about it? And she's like, okay. And he's like, but I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll never speak of this again until we get out in the street. And then I'm going to talk a lot about it. You know, <laughs> like, and we get the whole thing again about, um, you know, he was just fooled himself about his childhood that, you know, things weren't as great as you remember. They were quite bad. And she was like, well, we all do that. Like you said, you said before that you remember the good things. You don't remember the bad things. Cause if everybody remembered all the bad things all the time, I, I don't, if we kept every single bad thing that we remembered happening, I don't think we would function as individuals. We tend to let those kind of get softened and we want to always remember things better than they were. And that's the lesson here. And that's where we're at. Yeah, and I, I think the summary encapsulated the episode a little bit better, but um, I, I don't know if I don't know if I really followed enough of this um, like through line of where they were going with it. I agree. It hit home for me. I completely agree. I think you're right. Um, so it. Yeah, it, the whole thing is like he grows up. He grows up a little bit, but he realizes that you know you gotta look forward and not behind. And that's your episode. And I feel like I understand that there's a lot of uh, themes that get revisited often on the Twilight Zone. And and I and I know I know this isn't a Serling script, but when you watch it all going forward, you realize that there's times where he is an individual, as a creative person, he'll come up with like a concept and theme. And he will throw five variants out, you know, like, and then they all kind of hit upon the same thing. Like this, this isn't that far off of a retread from walking distance. This isn't, um, this isn't too far away from the one we just watched recently that like no time like the past in the sense of like this idealized, you know, past and that it's not going to work out the, the way you think it is. And this is literally very similar with perception versus reality of the last episode we just watched, you know? And, like this seems to be a lot of this coming on and it's like, and I'm not saying it's not a bad theme that it can't be mined for riches. It's just, man can, um, I think I'm good for a minute about like, you know, the past isn't as always great as we think it was. I think I'm good with that theme for right now. Yeah. I think they should have spaced these episodes out a little bit further. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had to have had an idea of how these things were going to be played in some succession that, Hey, maybe we shouldn't put the time episodes so close (laughs) together. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess, I mean, we'll get to our, like our final thoughts. Was there anything else about the, the, the the episode, uh, like improper before I get to some of the backstory about how this came to be in the twilight zone? No, I think we've pretty much covered what we were going to, uh, uh, unpack on, on the rest of this. Okay, so like I mentioned previously that this this actual um, story had appeared previously on TV. And when it was brought forward to uh, Serling um, back in the first season, when they were putting together the first season of Twilight Zone, he was like, meh, this is a little too similar to Walking Distance, which that just sounds like I was just pulling that, like, oh, I read this already. Like, no, Walking Distance is very thematically similar to this. And he's like, I don't, I'm good. I don't need this right now. But he, um, he said he would promise using the prospect of the teleplay at a later date. So um, follow with me here just a bit. Uh, this this is two paragraphs 
but it pays off pretty nicely. <clears throat> a few years later, Edith Efron wrote an editorial titled, Can a TV Writer Keep His Integrity? The article was a backhand slap at Rod Serling, who had made numerous comments uh, in the public eye about quality television. Serling promptly wrote a reply to the editorial in May 12th, 62, uh, the issue TV guide. He remarked, should TV guide have any further interest in me, I would count it as a personal favor if they refrained from sending Miss Edith Efron with her lace handled hatchet to do the job. I thought that was great. Um, Reginald Rose, meanwhile, praised Efron for her candor. Uh, I've just seen the TV guide piece and I'm writing to thank you for all your effort you put into making an interesting and excellent article. I only wish it could have been longer. So you got Reginald Rose right again to this person that, uh, that certainly thinks is a hack. <laughs> and it was like, I liked your piece, you know? So, all right. <clears throat> In the same month, Rose wrote to Serling personally to convey his appreciation and friendship, saying the only reason for the letter to TV Guide was to encourage Serling to venture away from science fiction and return to his dramatic roots from Playhouse 90 and Studio One. While Rose did not share the same passion for the field of fantasy, he did acknowledge uh, Serling's success and wish him all the best. If you promise not to be sore about the TV Guide article, I'll tell you a funny story, Rose uh, wrote him. My rotten kid, age 10, had a birthday party last week. And what do you think my rotten kid demanded as entertainment? Dear old dad, said he, I want you to show my chums uh, and me three Twilight Zones. So I did. That dirty, rotten kid. <laughs> so you could tell that uh, Rose and Serling had a bit of like, you know, they, they, had, a, they, they had a friendship and they ribbed each other. So um, Serling had deep respect for Rose, praising the playwright for his many achievements and decided to get even with Rose humorously by starting a series of gears in motion that would uh, bring Rose's former studio one teleplay, the incredible world of horse Ford to the twilight zone. So Rose was like kind of given um, Serling grief for like living in the world of science fiction and fantasy and Serling's like, okay, well I'll do you one better. I'm going to put your story on my show. And I think that's really funny. It's interesting. I, it's, I, I think that it is, it's kind of difficult to take those kinds of criticisms even back then, because I think that Rod Serling's, uh, you know, presentation of, uh, you know, stories ventured in so many different directions. It wasn't just strictly a sci-fi show. And I think that it's like kind of disheartening if anybody ever thinks of it that way. Well, and I think in Rose's defense, like he wasn't necessarily discrediting the twilight zone. I think he just, thought that Serling's um, like his, he would be better served as writing straight drama, which I mean um, there's um, Requiem for heavyweight, which was a studio um, like a playoffs 91 that like got Serling a lot of attention. He wrote some other amazing pieces that people liked a great deal. And that gave him the carte blanche to want to do the twilight zone because Serling, unlike a lot of people at the time, one, he was frustrated with the way TV wouldn't let you play in certain sandboxes because it was deemed too, like, too controversial. So he was, he kind of was able to go in and sidestepping completely and be like, oh, well, this is a science fiction story. We can, that has, that we're not directly commenting on fascism or bigotry or racism. We're just, you know, it's sci fi, you know, and I think he knew that this was a great avenue to still tell dramatic, serious stories. But if you put on some different clothes, you can sneak by the powers that be. I don't know if the rest of his contemporaries 
in terms of the dramatic writing saw the same type of weight. Um, so I think in considering, look, look at what Reginald Rose wrote. Like, so this story is almost beat for beat exactly what aired before, except for the ending. The ending was actually, um, it ended with the watch at the end with the Mickey mouse watch. So Laura would have found the watch and it would have been implied that Horace was a kid again and she lost him. So the producer of the show was like, we need a little bit more upbeat ending. So I think as muddled as some of the, the ideas are here, this is a pretty messed up and dark, like science fiction ish. It's more of a fantasy story. So, I mean, you know, Reginald Rose definitely delved into those waters a little bit. Um, but I don't know. I, I think it was a funny back and forth with them. And I think it was a, like, um, I'm sure we all have those friends that we're still friends. We like them a lot, but they're probably not into the same things that we all are. And there's always that kind of, um, that little side look of like, they like that really, but I like them. So I'm going to keep it to myself. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that aspect of it. Um, the, I think that this kind of story has been retold and I, I think packaged in a better way, uh, in, you know, in future endeavors, like this kind of is reminiscent to me of like, uh, the movie big. Oh, that, that's a oh. great call. I didn't think about that. You're a hundred percent right. Yeah. That's a, that that's spot on. Like the whole, it's, it's just the reverse though. It's the kid growing up and realizing, you know, being big. Right. And then him white it's, but you're right. That's a, that's a hell of a call. I didn't, I didn't think of that, That that's a good pull. Yeah. And, and, you know, it like, especially, um, you know, the fact that he works at a toy, a toy company too, <laughs> kind of helped Yeah, that, that through line there. Like, I mean, uh, you know, it's like, it, it makes sense to be, you know, looking at the grass on the is greener on the other side kind of ideology. And then when you get to the other side, you realize that it was more than what you bargained for. Yeah. And again, I just, so before we get to the twist, what, you know, whatever that is, I know it's, it's the kid thing, but I, I did not like this episode. It's actually going to be one of the, like the ones I, I hope to never watch again in regards to like, if, if I, if you put like a bucket of like, do not want episodes of twilight zone, this is going to be one of them. It's, it's like, it's one of my least favorites so far of the entire run. It's not because of the concept. It's not because of the ideas, which you're right. I think they've been revisited previously and talking to you about them. And then the idea of the repeating loop, and then some of that, that's some interesting stuff in there, but the, um, the parts aren't greater than the whole. And just, I like Pat Hingle, his performance when he's shrill and that shrill is not the right word for him, but just when he is just like on a tear, just pisses me off the way his mother is pisses me off. The, the wobbling of his wife's character is inconsistent and drives me nuts. I, I did not like this episode. I enjoyed our conversation about it though, if that makes sense. No. And honestly, that, that is the, the one thing that I honestly look forward to when it comes to, especially the shit episodes. Like I did not like this episode at all. Um, it definitely wasn't the worst of this season for me, but it was one that I feel that, when we were going to have this discussion, we were going to be able to find some real information to unpack and like discuss and really deep dive into. 
Um, but with that said, it's we're still talking about an episode that we didn't like. So we're really trying to find the the shiny parts of this. Yeah, like a shiny new robot. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, that's that's um, like I said, I watched it once, uh, and then the second time for notes, I definitely took an eight hour break, and I'm just like, hey, you only got twenty six more minutes. I'm like, really? But twenty six more minutes. <sighs> And I, and I went back and I did it. So, and then I got marbleized for it. So, um, yeah, I, I, that's my thoughts there. Um, let's cause we have to do it. Cause I have a button. We're just going to, we're just going to rate that twist. Um, that he would become a kid, a kid again and get beat up. Eh, I don't know. A one considering how much he like glory, like he, um, held up the past. He knew it was gonna come back and beat up, bite him in the ass or, beat him and marbleize him. That's it. I thought you were going to like say the second part of the episode. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Lately we've had like multiple parts of episodes that we've been like, I'll rate this a twist and this a twist. But um, yeah. So like what you're saying, I give it a little bit more um, gravity considering the story. Uh, I'd probably rate it like a, a three because it's, in what it's supposed to visualize is he is going back to that instant. And this is the real event unfolded. Um, that gave, that gave me a better understanding of what the rest of the episode was telling me. Uh, but that's about it. Um, if I had to rate any other twist is how remarkably, uh, like calm his manager was able to be in a New York business (laughs) setting. I'll give I'll give it a five for being employed for 15 years and not being just kicked out on your ass for acting that way. I didn't see that coming. 15 yeah, years. Right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, this is uh, that's that does it for our talk of the incredible boring world of Horace Ford. That's not the title of the episode, but I even wrote my notes here. More like Boris, you know. But just, there's times where it's like, just shut up, stop talking, Horace. Um, yeah, I think that's going to do it for our discussion. Uh, I'm sure this will be, uh, revisited briefly when we get to our end of season wrap up, which is quickly approaching. Um, you guys can find us on our Facebook page of strange highways. Uh, there I, I meant to put more information and pictures up for the previous episode. Uh, I am going to post a picture of Julie Newmar with devil horns because the world needs to see that. Like you just, you need it. That will make your day better. I forgot to do it. It's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, you guys could uh, join the conversation there. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Previous episodes would be great. You can email us directly at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com. Um, and then also, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, you know whether it be through you know Apple Podcasts, Google Music, uh, Stitcher, Podbean, um, I don't know, um, wherever, 7-Eleven. I don't know where you get your podcasts. Uh, you could uh, just wherever you find them, rate and review us. Cause if you rate and review us, that means more people will find us. And if you like the show and right now, since we're all still kind of awkwardly wondering if we should go out in public and, or not, and you got more time on your hands and you like watching the twilight zone and you think friends might want more content, recommend us. It'd be great. Cause again, we're going to be covering season two of the Jordan Peele uh, twilight zone in June when it drops. So it's really exciting. And the more the merrier. Yeah, and it's uh, I'm if you are listening to this right now, thank you. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, spreading the love would definitely help us out. And uh, when you rate and review, that builds an algorithm for us to find more exposure and 
get into more people's heads and drive them slowly insane with us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, all right. So next episode we're covering is called, um, on Thursday, we leave for home. Uh, on Twilight Zone next week, a most unusual and provocative story in which we call upon the talents of James Whitmore as a mayor of a town. A little mild on the face of it, except when we supply the following addenda. This town is on an asteroid 10 billion miles from Earth. Our story is called On Thursday We Leave for Home. So, space story. I'm okay with this. We haven't had a space story since Death Ship and that one. You know, there was a lot to like there. Um, so, yeah, on Thursday, we leave for home. That's going to do it for us this week. Hope you guys have a good week. Have a good holiday. I keep forgetting that there's a holiday coming up because, you know, we've all been home for a while. <laughs> but have a good Memorial Day. Um, yeah, uh, be safe. Uh, don't buy three-cent wieners. That's what I got to say about that. Yeah, definitely be cautious of those. Mr. Judson? What are you doing at the window? Nothing. Uh, just thinking. Thinking about what? I don't know. Business. <laughs>